Beloved in the Lord, one of the areas will the church, where the church will necessarily have a very different approach to Israel is in warfare. The church is not given a physical sword to enact the judgment of God. Christ has radically changed our attitudes toward different nations. The claim of the New Testament is that he not only died for the Jews, but for the world, and doing so fulfilled the law in a way that broke down the wall of hostility that was between Jew and Gentile. There's no special people of God anymore except for those who are brought into the church of Jesus Christ. And the church is primarily engaged in destroying the principalities and powers that are behind the different tribes and nations. The lies that hold a culture in its thrall. Our enemies are not flesh and blood. Therefore, the principles of warfare in Deuteronomy 20 that apply to our warfare against principalities and powers, particularly the lies that hold societies under their power. And even when we read other portions of Scripture that talk about warfare like Joshua and Judges, we need to understand it in this light. When we sing from Psalm 18 about conquering our enemies, we understand it in this light. This is now spiritual warfare. Now, because of Christ, this text does not automatically apply to our civil magistrate either. While we still expect to prioritize our own people and nation in the affairs of the world, we recognize that in warfare, the various nations do not have the unique place of the Israelites as they entered the promised land. Physical wars the wars between nations today simply do not have the sanction of God as Israelite war did. That means we need to use biblically inspired wisdom to understand which wars today are just and which are unjust. Again, while the unique Jews had a unique place in God's plan, and so also had an understanding of war that clearly privileged the Jewish people above other tribes and nations. There is the exception when Jews were in rebellion against God. In that sense, they are the first to receive the judgment of God. So even though they were privileged, that is not the economy of physical warfare after Christ. That means that that is something that nations need to consider when we develop rules for warfare. We can see, for example, something like the international rules that came out of the Genevan Convention in the early 20th century that were written down for warfare are, for a large part, in line with the teaching of Scripture, even if they do not reflect exactly what was written down in Deuteronomy 20. They are developed from attempts on the part of the church to intervene between warring nations of Europe in the Middle Ages. 
Even though they are different, we can see principles from Deuteronomy 20 that do apply. Now, that's not going to be our primary focus in the sermon today. The primary focus is going to be on what does this mean for the church. And so I bring you the word of the Lord under the theme, God instructs us in our warfare. First, we're going to see courage. Second, we're going to see conduct. And third, we're going to see care. Courage to enter the battle, how we are to conduct our battle, and having a care for the earth, for, for the things around us as we wage the war. One of the most important attitudes to have in war is courage. The soldier needs the courage to stand and continue to do his duty even when he faces overwhelming odds. One of the most important things to have in an army is discipline, particularly the discipline to continue to push the enemy while the air is filled with groans of fallen companions, with the awareness that you might die too. However, you continue to do your duty. It was the discipline combined with loyalty, combined with confidence that the Roman army and the British army had that allowed them to be so successful, often against overwhelming odds. The discipline of the Israelite army has similarities, but it's also different because its primary discipline is trust in the true God. The Israelite soldier, if he trusted in God, had the same boldness that the Roman soldier or the British soldier might have had. And it was based on something far more real. God had promised that if they trusted in Him, they would win. If we look at the book of Joshua, in the moments where Israel won, we don't even have a mention of the casualties of Israel. Although that was more common at that time, in wars at that time, most of the killing was done while the enemy army was fleeing. So we don't even have a mention of Israelite casualties, especially when they win. This was confirmed, and this truth was confirmed, this trust was confirmed by the priests coming forward before they went out to war and giving the people of Israel a pep talk, reminding them that they were fighting God's war and God was on their side. This was followed by the officers of the army coming before the people and ensuring two things. First, that those who had not enjoyed the fruit of their hands would have an opportunity to enjoy it. And second, that those who were fearful would have an opportunity to walk away. The first reasons for not joining are out of God's love for his people. God wants his people to have an opportunity to enjoy the good gifts that he gives. The second exception, the fearful and the faint-hearted, is far less noble. God does not give this exception because the coward deserves something good. Rather, he makes this exception because of their effect on their comrades in battle. One speck of rottenness can affect the whole bushel. One coward can turn a well-disciplined army into cowards. The call to courage 
remains very important to the Christian church. We're engaged in the work of reconciliation, and we must go forward in faith that God blesses us, blesses us and strengthens us for the work of reconciliation that we are engaged in, even when we suffer. For Jesus Christ sets the example for that suffering. Jesus Christ encourages his apostles to speak with boldness as they go out into the world and they proclaim his name. Jesus encourages his disciples repeatedly, do not fear, just as the Lord encourages his people Israel repeatedly, do not fear. Now, our war, again, is not with flesh, even though we fight in the flesh. Our war is against the lies that take hold on a person's heart. So, in some ways, our enemies are even more frightening. Therefore, it's all the more important that we stand in the grace of God as we carry on the Lord's work. And most importantly, for the leaders of the church, if we want to find an analog to the Israelite soldier, the leaders of the church would be the best picture. All of Israel is called to be bold, but especially those who encourage the people in their courage. As we stand before God in our meetings and in other places where we're called to lead God's church, we're called to be bold in the face of the lies of this world, recognizing that the devil goes about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. That boldness ought to be especially evident in the faithful preaching of God's word. Our simple witness to the truth causes the devils and demons to quaver. The singing of God's church causes Satan to hide his head. It's in our worship that we find the boldness to contest the principalities of this world. We heard something of that this morning. It's in our worship where we are strengthened by the presence of Christ in others and in the Lord's Supper that strengthens us for the contests with sin each week. Through these divine arguments, we have divine power to destroy strongholds, including every lofty opinion that is raised against Christ. That's why Paul is so urgent with Timothy. Preach the word, ready in season and out of season, in good times and in bad times. This demonstrates that the word courage goes well with the word fortitude, a willingness to continue to do our duty even when times are hard. The concessions given to the army of the Lord are helpful in discerning good choices for leadership. We often, in fact, use the verses about a new field or a new wife as a reason not to call a young man to leadership, even outside of the offices of the church. And that's a good application of the passage. Of course, understanding there will be exceptions. We also want leaders who are ready to fight for the truth against both false teachers from within and lies of the age from without, who are ready to take the thoughts of this world captive to Jesus Christ. And of course, we want them to have the courage and fortitude to continue the work of reconciliation in both good times and bad, both in season and out of season. 
men who are ready to lead grounded in faith toward God, even as things go against them. Ultimately, that begins with each person here today. You're called to courage. And in your courage and standing on the promises, you strengthen the church of God. And you can have that courage. Because the thing about this battle is that in principle, it's already won in Jesus Christ. When my dad went to work as a missionary in New York, early in his ministry, now he's in Toronto, the first words he heard from Reverend Schlichel, who, who was, who was um, the pastor in that mission, were not how wonderful to have you. Rather, Reverend Schlichel looked at him and challenged on him on whether he was really ready to take on the challenge of spreading the gospel in New York. Reverend Schlichel, whatever faults he may have had, understood that he didn't want a faint-hearted co-worker who would flee when the challenges of ministry were met. That brings us to our second point, conduct. The goal of the holy warfare of Israel was to carve out a special place for the people of God, a place where God could establish a beachhead for his holy people and where he could eventually bring his Christ, a holy land, if you will. The wars of Israel were holy warfare, war that was sanctioned by God. So the instructions in this passage ought not to be automatically applied to modern warfare. Though we can see in the, in the distinction between those who are belligerent toward Israel and those who are not, important insights. For example, we, we, we don't want to be fighting against non-combatants. The first type of people God talks about would have been people who dwelt in the land of Canaan or beyond the land of Canaan but were not of the nations that were under judgment. These would include groups like the Philistines or nations that surrounded Israel, that provoked Israel to war, like the Moabites and the Edomites. If Israel laid siege to one of these cities, they were to offer them peace. If the peace was refused and they conquered the city, they were to kill all the fighting age men. On a side note, we can see in chapter 21 concerning the marriage of female captives that Israel would not have been allowed to engage in rape. Now, the fact that they would kill all the, the um, fighting age men probably seems to barbaric by today's standards. But the reality was this removed the likelihood of a group gathering among Israel seeking vengeance for their fallen city especially at that time where ties to family, place, and tribe were very strong. This was, again, a time of, of tribalism. It's very different from our own time, which, where we really emphasize the individual. There's also evidence here that God gives special preference to his own people and their wars, for there's an affront to God in the unwillingness to recognize the special nature of the people of God and the special mission of the people of God. 
A second group was to be completely destroyed. These were the Hittites and the Amorites, the Canaanites and the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites. That was because their iniquity was full. Israel was the hand of the judgment of God in this case. If they failed to do this, they would likely to begin to participate in their abominations. And we can take lessons from this for Christian warfare against principalities and powers as well. Christian warfare is a warfare to win hearts and minds for Christ. We must ensure that lies that continue to dwell in the hearts of those who come into the church are destroyed. We must make no room for them. We must seek to make sure that we all do not give some part of the allegiance that belongs to God to something else. And we recognize in light of the Canaanites who must be completely destroyed that in some things there is no shared light between the church and the world. We can speak of the light of nature or common grace or natural law, but some things are simply demonic and must never be allowed in the church. These would most often be things that are referred to as abominations in the Old Testament, such as worship of a false god, using an image to worship God, the use of child sacrifice, or certain forms of sexual perversity. Similarly, with any sin or sinful attitudes in our own lives, it's silly to speak of subjecting them to Christ. They must be destroyed, crucified on the cross of Christ. We are to hate sin. I believe it's one of our forms that talks about hating ourselves, meaning our old natures. We want to seek out and destroy them. Unfortunately, like Israel, we too often permit some of these Canaanites to continue to flourish in our hearts when we ought to be at continual war with them. The problem? Unconfessed sin can lead to greater sin and even to abomination. In all these things, remember that Jesus Christ won the war first. He has conquered sin and death. So that even as I fail, he remains faithful. He conquered, he finished, destroyed the corrupt body which the Israelites could not do. Remember that any of you may continue to come to his throne and he will remove those sins as far from you as east is from west. He is your mercy seat that you may come to at any time and receive forgiveness of sins. And in that forgiveness, those sins die. They're punished on the cross of Christ. It brings us to our third point, care. The last part of our chapter is a warning against destroying fruit-bearing trees around the city. It's a warning against scorched earth tactics. 
probably one of the most relevant parts for modern warfare, where we have a great deal of scorched earth tactics from supposedly civilized country. We see God's desire to preserve the creation and His desire to preserve what is fruitful in the siege of a city. Scorched earth tactics, the use of complete destruction of what is good in the land, comes out of a failure to trust in God to determine the end of the war, and also a desire for vengeance that goes beyond the vengeance that God allows for. In one of the examples we have of this in the Scriptures, 2 Kings 3, we have the nation of Moab rebel against the people of Israel, the northern, uh, the northern uh, um, nation at this time. David had, of course, made them a vassal state of Israel. Now Moab sought to shake off that connection. God shows himself to be with Israel and Judah, who are working together to quell this rebellion. But... Israel and Judah decide to use a scorched earth policy in their attack on Moab, something that God did not condone. The king of Moab, in desperation, sacrifices his own son, which will in his mind stop the attack. And in this case, it does. In response, God is wrathful toward Israel. The sense is that Israel pushed Moab to this act of desperation. And God, who was originally for Israel, now sees Israel as no better than Moab. This also has an application to the work of the church. As we've already said, the war of the church is in converting hearts and toppling down lies and bringing every thought into subjection to Jesus Christ. Sometimes the church can treat a particular culture as sacrosanct. The suggestion that missionaries from Europe and the U.S. were sometimes missionaries of Western culture and not of Jesus Christ has some weight to it. We need to be very careful about suppressing good parts of different cultures. There's also a warning against using the gospel like a firebrand. We can think of the warning of James against cursing those who are made in the image of God. We do not want to destroy. And sometimes, the way, even in the way we can attack the <clears throat> principalities and powers, can destroy those who are subject to it. We want to transform and conform to Jesus Christ. We want to transform through Jesus Christ, and anything that is fruitful in a given culture or in a given person can be used to build up the church of God. It's best that once a person has received Christ as Lord to work out the implications of that through conversation and over time. What we commend here is patience and humility as we encourage each person. So not just those who are new to the faith, but each one of us to work out how to order their lives according to the teaching of the Spirit, 
We are all, after all, in the process of conversion, more and more submitting to Jesus Christ as the Spirit works to stitch us together in love, as Christ, the great carpenter, builds his house so that each part of the house fits together. He is ultimately the one who decides what is fruitful and what is not. This whole passage here is various pieces of wisdom that the church is to prudently work out in her own warfare as she's in conflict with the principalities and powers of this world. We're called to discern where we need to destroy lies, where we need to confront the powers that be, and where we see the wisdom, the fruitfulness of the nations that can be transformed and brought into the church of Jesus Christ to serve the Lord Jesus and become good fruit for the sake of his kingdom. If we approach this task with humility, always recognizing the lordship of Christ in everything, faithful to the work of the ministry of reconciliation, God will give us the wisdom and the courage we need. The courage and wisdom we need to defend the faith and so bring all things in subjection to Jesus Christ. All glory be to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's sing in response again from Psalm 18, verses 13, 14, and 15.